All right, so uh, where are my 80s kids? Who, how many of you grew up in the 80s? Like you consider yourself an 80s kid and you grew up in the 80s? And my wife proudly with her hands. I'm like, yeah, uh, there's, a, there's probably more of us. Not that you're born in the 80s, Josh. That you're, yeah. <laughs> anyway, but so, the, but you, you, we all know if you grew up in the 80s, we had the best music, yeah? yeah? Like by far, they still play our music at high schools and uh, because it's the best. And the styles, I, I don't know, maybe not so much. But anyway, but it was just a great time. And for me, it was uh, 1987. I was 16 years old. It was my summer of my 16-year-old year. Everything was changing. I just got my, uh, a new car. just bought my car. just got uh, my first job at El Taco. And, uh, and everything was, was changing. I, just, um, I was really involved in Boy Scouts. And so I had just gotten my Eagle Scout. And it was just a really busy summer for me. And one of the things our Boy Scout troop did, I loved Boy Scouts, we, we went uh, hiking. So we used to do a backpack trip up in the Sierras. Uh, we did a 66-miler. So this is like the legit backpacking where you like pack everything for the week. You go off. You don't see anybody for five days, that kind of stuff. And so I loved it. But this one trip in, in, in 87 was a turning point in my life because so many other things were changing. But uh, one of the, the biggest thing was that my dad had moved out just a couple weeks before this trip. And everything was so unsure. I was just incredibly unsure about my future. But you know those times when you're just too busy to actually sit and think about what's going on in your life? And you, you know you have all these emotions bottled up and stuff, but you don't really want to think about it or you're too busy to, and so you just stay busy. Well, when you go backpacking and you're walking in quiet for hours and hours and hours a day, you have time to think. And that's kind of what happened. Uh, the worst part of the, one of the worst parts of the trip was that um, I had to settle for an old backpack. I literally had a Kmart backpack. It was $35. And if you've ever done this, you know that the gear is super important and it didn't fit right and everything was bad about the, that. But the worst part of it was just all the, the emotional pain that you're going through as I'm sitting there thinking about um, what's gonna happen with my family you know, am I, am I going to make it? How, what am I going to do? Uh, you know, everything about the future was just incredibly uncertain. And so all the physical pain of this trip, which was really difficult, helped me with the emotional pain. And, uh, you know, I always say when you, when you hike, no lazy steps, you know, because when you're walking, if you get lazy, you know, you just kind of drag your feet or whatever. And so I was trying to be very careful. I slipped and fell a few times because I wasn't uh, paying attention or I was just out of it a little bit. One time I almost fell down like a 200-foot ravine. <laughs> it would have been bad. Um, but I, basically on this trip, it was so difficult for me emotionally and physically. But you know in those instances, you, you, I have no option. There's no, heli the helicopter's not coming, you know. <laughs> and there's no sat phones and there's no exit. You just have to keep walking. And I just remember, you know, you just, you take the next step and you just, you just keep walking. And that's what I was doing. Was, and it, it really helped me to process. And I feel like the Lord really met me in that. And and it, it kind of illustrates what we're talking about today. The idea is that God's plan is to take you from where you are and put you on a path to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Now, we know that this doesn't happen overnight. It's a long process, a long path. It's lifelong to become more like Jesus. But we know that he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. And so we're in a series right now called Failing Forward, seeing the process of failure, recovery, failure, all these kinds of things. What do we do with our failures and how God forgives us? And we're looking at a man named Abraham today. And, you know, a lot of times when we, when we read these Bible characters, especially somebody like Abraham, it's like Father Abraham and many sons, you know, and it's like the father of the Jews and it's like such an important guy. And we're like, you know, he's so special and extraordinary because he's Bible people. You know, no, I think we're going to see that Abraham was very much an ordinary guy who made a lot of the same mistakes that we make, but he just, God used him to do some extraordinary things. He starts out with his name as Abram, gets changed to Abraham later, but his father had been called out of Babylon. So 
They called out of Babylon, they move up to a place called Haran, and then they live there for a while, and then afterwards they move down into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And so it's interesting, though, that the first Jew was a Babylonian. Just remember that. That's a whole other discussion. Ask me about it later. Um, but God commanded him to go, and he said, I want you to go to a place that you don't know and, and leave your family. So let's look at Genesis 12. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and click it open if you want to turn your Bible on. Uh, Genesis uh, first book of the Bible, chapter 12. So we're only 12 chapters into this thing. We're meeting kind of this main character, Abram. And here's what it says, one through three. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those, I'm sorry, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's a good deal, isn't it? I mean, think about it. This is such a pivotal passage. But think about what this incredible offer that God makes to him. So Abram leaves, goes to the promised land. He's got his wife Sarah, Sarai's changed to Sarah later, and his nephew Lot, and he becomes the father of the Jews, and he's living in the promised land. And God had called him to leave your culture, your country, and your kin, and go to this place that you don't even know. And he obeys. But we know why, <laughs> because of the benefits. So that's the first uh, fill-in that we've got here. The number one is that we initially follow God for the benefits, right? I mean, think about the benefits that Abraham is offered here. Incredible things. And think about this too, though. As, think about the grid that you put most of your decisions in your life through. Don't most of them, you decide on something based on how it helps you? We do, and, and that's okay. It, it kind of sounds selfish, you know, well, I'm only gonna do the things that help me, but really it's actually kind of common sense as well. I mean, it's fair to, be, to say that we're motivated by benefits, and it's very typical human response. And I'll bet that for a lot of us, those of us who've decided to follow Christ as our Savior, that we initially did so for the benefits. You see, I think that when we understand that in our sin, we're destined to be separated from God for all of eternity, but then God offers to us a way to remove our sin for free. If we were just to believe in him and trust in him and he gives it to us as a gift, that's not a difficult decision, really, when you weigh it all. Now, it's, it can be scary, of course, going to the unknown like Abraham, but, but it, it should be a, a fairly easy decision when you really understand that your sin can be forgiven and the guilt can be taken away by Christ's death on the cross. It's a wonderful benefit that, to be able to spend the, your eternity in the presence of God. So God comes to Abram. Abram's motivated by this promise, everything a man could want. I mean, think of what he's looking at here. An incredible heritage and children, a great name, worldwide impact, protection from his enemies. He's gonna be blessed materially. He's gonna be successful. And so God meets Abram where he's at. He starts him at this like first level faith. Why? Because he's at the first level. He's just getting started. So all of us, when we come to God, we come for the payoff, right? For what we can get. And that's okay, unless you stay there. See, I think that in my observation, just as you, we set out on this trail, and if you stay in stage one, we follow God for the benefits, and, but if, you, if, you're in, if you're in it, if you're in your walk with Christ for the benefits, so many people drop out. You see, I think that if you follow God only as long as you see the payoff, you're gonna ditch. I think is, if there's anything that COVID has shown us, what, what, what does everybody say? It exposes your pre-existing, 
Remember, I'm a kid's pastor. I needed people to talk to me. Like, creep me out. Everybody being here all quiet and, and listening, that's weird to me. Like, I need somebody kick somebody's chair or pick somebody's nose or something like that. It's creepy that you're quiet. So I need you to talk. So, so COVID exposed our pre-existing conditions, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's what it is. If you think about spiritually how it might have done that, revealing pre-existing conditions. Because I've seen a lot of people whose faith and commitment to Christ, to the church family, all that kind of stuff, that when it only, if it only works in the good times when it feels good and it's easy and it makes sense, but then falls off when things get difficult or inconvenient or uncomfortable, or you're asked to sacrifice some, if, if that's it, then I'm afraid, my, my fear is that it might be shortcutting God's journey for you. And you might just be camping out at the first stop where the blessings lie. I mean, what if I told you that it's not, it is not God's will for you to be a Christian? You might think, well, Pastor Chris, you're crazy. You've been listening to all these little TikTok progressive weenie pastors that are out there. You know, these guys that do the little 30 seconds of wisdom. <laughs> you know, and, and, but here's the thing. I don't think that your, God's will for you is to be a Christian only. God's will is for you to become a fully devoted follower of Christ. Now, a true Christian would say that's, that's what a Christian is, is a fully devoted follower of Christ. But some people just want their get out of hell free card. So they camp out at the first stop, just the benefits. But long term, God doesn't want you just to stay here and say, I'm good, I like this, I'm, I'll, I'll just stay here. See, because God promises, and the more you read your scripture, you're gonna see that, but that the process is not easy and that the further you go, the more challenges you're gonna face and that this trail that he has us on is a lot of slippery rocks, a lot of dangerous ravines, a lot of steep mountain passes, and it won't always feel good, and it certainly won't always be easy. But I don't want you to feel guilty for following God initially for what you can get. We all start there, that's fine, and I think God's okay with that, but just don't stay there. Otherwise, it'll cut short the process. So the second stop is where we're gonna camp for a little while today, but it's this, it's we struggle to follow God through our weaknesses. So you follow God for the benefits, but then he wants you to keep walking. And then inevitably, and we know this, inevitably on life's journey, all these difficulties arise. And we've all experienced it at some level, but financial trouble, lost job, kids have problems, our life doesn't come out the way we planned it, physical sickness, we lose a loved one, a relationship blows up, we struggle with addiction, all of our insecurities um, rise up and overpower us. Something, and we've all had something. Now with Abraham... God calls him to leave Haran, move to Canaan to receive all these promised benefits that he was offering to him. And he's immediately met with a challenge. Look at chapter 12, verse 10. This is just like a few verses in. We've just met this guy. He gets this incredible promise. And then verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. <laughs> so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine in the land was, uh, for the famine was severe in the land. Severe in the land means it's not just that there was no food. It's like there was really, really, really no food in the original Hebrew. No, just teasing. Uh, no, but it, it was a severe famine, right? So think about it. Like God tells him, okay, leave the, the land where you're comfortable. Go to this new land and I'm gonna bless you. And immediately there's a famine? <laughs> now, of course, the idea of famine hits different for 21st century Christians, you know, those of us who've never really actually had much of a lack of food. Like we'll go into the store. We're like, ah, the shelves are so empty, well, they're not empty. They may only just not have the, the one cereal out of the whole aisle of cereal that you're looking for, right? Ah, supply chain. All that, you know, maybe you'd like, oh, you can't buy a good tomato. 
you know, or, you know, the avocados are too soft or something like, like that's not a famine, okay? Like that's not, that's not what we're dealing with. We're talking about there really being no food. But I'm curious, do you see anything else happening here that may be a little off that, um, other than the, the lack of food, which is, you know, we all feel it's a big problem. But what would, what else is going on here? What else is wrong? Well, okay, he's leaving the land that God just called him to. Go down this land, I'm gonna bless you. And it's this early test. God calls and promises a blessing. Now there's no food. He obeys God to go to Canaan, and then as soon as it gets tough, he bails. And he disobeys God and goes to Egypt. First big failure. Then verse 11, right after that, it says, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a beautiful, woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is, my, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared. He's so concerned about her, isn't he? <laughs> I mean, think about how, so that my life will be spared. It'll go well with me, you know. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. See anything wrong here? What's wrong here? You can say it. Well, he allows his wife to become Pharaoh's wife. Okay? Second big failure. We're, you know, 16 verses in with this guy and his two big old failures initially. And, and but here's the funny thing, that, that he had, God had just told him, he said, whoever curses you, I will curse. And then he lies to protect himself, not trusting that God will protect him. Verse 16, and for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male fe servants, female servants, females, female donkeys, and camels. So he gets all kinds of Egyptian swag in exchange for his wife. Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So long before uh, the, the normal Egyptian plagues that happened because Pharaoh was deceptive, there were plagues in Egypt because Abraham was deceptive. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So he takes the swag, hits the road. See, God promises to bless the nations through Abraham. And then the first nation that Abraham comes to it's cursed because of his lies. And there's no nice way to put this, but Abraham pimps his wife out to protect himself and then gets a bunch of stuff in return. I mean, well, how else do you say that? But it, and it's a plain reading that she becomes Pharaoh's wife with all of the marital obligations. So instead of staying in the promised land and trusting God to provide, he flees to Egypt and trusts Pharaoh to provide. What a hero. These are our Bible, Bible people heroes and stuff, right? But God said that he would establish his family with Abraham and Sarah, and now he has to intervene to protect that promise that he had made. So this is interesting, and I listened to a podcast this week about it, and it just struck me, and I, I don't, I'm, I'm working through it and chewing on it. But God's commitment to the promise that he had made to Abraham makes him defend a lying Abraham over an innocent Pharaoh. Pharaoh was innocent. He just... He believed him. 
So when, here's my thought though, I don't, I'm chewing on it, but when God commits himself to you as a follower of Christ, he will defend you through your failures, even when you don't deserve it. Abraham certainly didn't deserve it. This is what we're saying through this whole series is that we fail, but he is faithful. And in this early story of Abraham, it highlights the liability that we as people are to God's plans and how easily we mess it all up. But God is faithful even in our failures. And he's willing to stand by his promise to Abraham even though he's doing everything he can to botch it. So things got tough in the famine, he leaves the land, fail. Things get potentially difficult with Pharaoh and his wife, he lies to Pharaoh, fail. See, there comes times in our lives when our weaknesses are just thrust to the surface. We've all experienced this, seasons where everything's going wrong, God feels far away, very uh, uncomfortable, and we're tempted to say, well, this isn't working for me, this must not be real. Let me just say, no, it's working just fine. You see, your weaknesses are being revealed so that God is asking you to face them so that your faith can be purified. And that's why I say, if you camp at the first stage and don't face your weaknesses, like if you're only in this for the benefits, those weaknesses will sabotage, and that's our fill-in. Your weaknesses will sabotage who you're supposed to be, and you will never arrive at the destination of becoming a fully devoted follower of Christ. Because let's be clear, I think the Bible's pretty clear on this, is that the Christian life is not about self-improvement and comfort. I think the Christian faith is a little bit like a tea bag where it needs to be put in a little hot water, see how strong it is. And this is, I think, the problem that we deal with, uh, the problem of pain in our, in our secular culture that's out there. It just, you know, the Western secularism, as we kind of experience it, has, it just ignores the reality of pain. But we know that pain and suffering are part of being a, a human being on life on the earth. There's no mistaking it. Now, other religions will try to answer it through like, well, it's fate, it's karma, you know, uh, pain is an illusion, uh, suffering is an illusion, you know, or there's this, you know, grand cosmic war that's going on, which is collateral damage. Is all, you know, there's all kinds of religious-like explanations for it. But Western secularism, which I believe is a religion, it's all the tenets of a religion, but this, so this whole idea that, you know, uh, there is no God, there's nothing spiritual, it's only matter, uh, only material, is, that's all that there is, the universe is eternal. So that, that kind of idea that, you know, that, that um, we're all just here out of revolu uh, evolutionary random chance and chaos. You know the worldview, you've seen it, you've heard it, you, go to, you pay thousands of dollars to school so they can teach it to you. Right? So that idea that the matter is all there is, there is no God, and we're all just evolutionary chance and chaos. There's no, with that view, with there being no God, since you know, culture is essentially killing God off, there's no ultimate meaning or direction to life. And so then the goal is just to be happy. Because we get one trip around the sun, not the sun, one trip in life, we get one trip on this earth, and then that's it, blip, no, we're not going anywhere, there's no heaven, right, because there's no God. And so the goal would be to avoid pain at all costs, because if my goal is to be happy, then I need to then, then avoid pain, because pain is just an interruption into my life's purpose, which is to be happy. So in times of pain, that kind of worldview doesn't allow for there to be meaning in pain, it's just an interruption. So we need to minimize and avoid pain at all costs. And so you end up with these garbage little trite phrases like thoughts and prayers. What is that? 
That's the equivalent, you know, during pain of saying, I'm, I'm, religi- I'm, I'm spiritual, not religious. Well, what does that even mean? You know, or when somebody is hurting and somebody else says, well, the universe is teaching you something. It'll all work out. You know, be strong, pick yourself up, and everything will work out for the best. Well, okay, for a Christian you can say that because we believe that God is working all things for the good of those who love him. But if you don't believe in God, I don't know how you can say that. So it's trite, it's empty. So either you go to that kind of stuff, the little trite, empty phrases that mean nothing, or with that worldview, you just get outraged by it. Or maybe you believe in God and you just get mad at him for it and you blame him for it. But either way, suffering always wins. We're just victims of life's pains because there's no ultimate meaning in it. See, I think in the biblical worldview, trials, tests, all of that is, is orchestrated by God to purify our faith. And I'll say this, if it takes your problems and pain to drive you into the presence of God, then your problems and your pain have fulfilled their purpose. So we're not here to be comfortable. You're here to become a fully devoted follower of Christ. I saw this two months ago. I was able to go to India back in April. I had a great time. My, my brother-in-law's got a missions organization called 360 Serve. You should check it out. And uh, he's working with church planting movement in Uttar Pradesh, so the more northern part of, of India. And it, it, it's through this guy, we call him Pastor M, just to kind of protect his identity and stuff. But he was with us the whole time that we were there. Wonderful guy. Came to Christ years ago when his brother got healed. Um, and there was a promise that he had heard that Jesus heals, and he believed it. Brother got healed, and he started a whole church planting movement. And so in that whole Uttar Pradesh region, there are 242,000 villages unreached with the gospel. Up to a billion, when you include the two lowest castes that are there, up to a billion people. Imagine one in eight people in the world living in that region. And so 20 years ago, God uh, you, you know, brought Pastor M to himself. Um, and then two weeks ago, because when we were there in April, it was hot. It was like 100 degrees. And uh, I've met some people that are from India. I told them I went to India in April. They're like, ooh, it must have been hot. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And June, apparently, it's like 120 or whatever there. So they have a strategy with the church planning movement is that this is two weeks ago where they would send out these teams when it's so hot, when less people are working and more people are at home and they could reach people in their homes. And so last, two weeks ago, they had 5,000 teams go out to 25,000 villages, 5 million people heard the gospel, and 500,000 of them came to Christ. That's amazing. And it started from our boy, Pastor M. And he's, he's amazing, you know? And so, now, there are most, you know, missionary, when you become a Christian, they tell you, you're a missionary. You'll be a church planner. They just start sharing the gospel immediately despite tremendous risk to them. They lose families, they're beaten, they're jailed. Um, There's amazing stories. And I just gotta tell you that we met, you know, pretty much every day we were meeting with these different groups of church planners, people that are, um, you know, out there going village to village planting churches. And every single time, they would share their testimonies. And every single testimony out of dozens that I heard involved a healing. I mean, and it wasn't like, um, you know, you're sick with cancer and, you know, if you believe in Jesus, who knows, maybe he'll heal you. It was, if you, you, if you believe in Jesus right now, he will heal you. And they do. 
and, and they are. <laughs> I mean, we, I had stories. There were people standing right there. They're standing up, translating, getting their testimonies about cancer being healed, demon possession. One guy was tied up in the middle of his, of his own house to the center pole um, chain because he was demon possessed. And they brought a guy in. He prayed. And he goes, and he was healed of his demon. He goes, oh, there he is right there. And the guy stands up. He goes, yeah, we have church in my house now. But where I used to stand around, I used to be chained to the center pole because I was demon possessed. That kind of stuff. Another guy says, um, my mother died and somebody had told me about Jesus being resurrected so I went and got this guy and I brought him to my house and he prayed and my mother was brought back from, from the dead after three hours. They were preparing her body for burial. It's insane. So here's what I'm saying. <laughs> so because for the last 12 years in India, this movement started by Pastor M, they've, they've started 42,000 house churches. They've seen 1.2 million converts. And this year, I sat in a room, there were 90 church planners and master trainers that were there, and they're each responsible for at least like 150 churches, and they committed themselves right in front of me to starting 40,000 new churches and training 100,000 new people and seeing a million conversions this year. They're getting it done, everybody. It's amazing stuff, right? So what I learned from Indian believers is that when you become a Christian, it's immediate obedience at great sacrifice, because many of them have been beaten, dis arrested, jailed. And now, do you not think that they feel weak or ill-trained or uncomfortable? But they're just so thankful to Jesus instead of all the fear that Hinduism has, had brought them. They'll do anything, and they just immediately become a missionary. You know, they're so fervent for their faith, just like in America, right? It's so unlike American Christianity where we feast on Bible study for years and years and years, and then we're too afraid to share our faith because what? We're afraid of being like maybe rejected or somebody saying no when there's no real danger. See, in India, they have all the people ready to go, but they don't have the resources. And in America, we have all the resources and nobody's ready to go. So that's what my brother-in-law's trying to do. He's trying to marry the two. <laughs> Send our resources to them because they're getting it done. But here's the idea, you guys, is that can we just push aside this American false worship of comfortability? This lie that life is supposed to be easy and embrace that God is surfacing your weaknesses and my weaknesses and, and, and making you deal with them and preparing you to be a vessel to serve him so that you can keep walking the trail. That's the idea. Keep walking. So for Abraham... Over these next couple chapters, I really encourage you to read these chapters on Abraham starting in Genesis 12. Read them this week. It's really a fascinating story. It's too much. Ask me later. I've got all kinds of extra stuff in my head about it. But <laughs> after all this, then comes the biggest challenge to his faith. So look at Genesis 15, verse 1 through 6. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your, very, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God. What will you give me? For I continue childless, and my heir, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven, the number of stars, if you are able, and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall our offspring be. He's saying, Abraham, just count the stars. You're going to have more descendants than the, off, than the number of stars in the sky. And so God, this is several times now that God has renewed this covenant that he has with Abram. He's so patient with Abram, even when he's doubting, to renew this wonderful covenant with him. And, and you can see this incremental faith. You know, Abram, he falls, and he, 
He gets up and he keeps walking and he falls again and he gets up and he keeps walking. And then because in verse six, this is a fabulous, this is a central verse to all of scripture. Verse six, it says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is where we see grace. God is not, righteousness is a uh, salvation term. He's saying Abraham was saved, not because he was doing all the right things or because of his works, but because of his faith. And so just like you and me, Abraham has all these failures, but he keeps moving forward, keeps walking. See, because don't we all like have these moments of victory and trust and doubt and failure, and then we're tempted to take matters into our own hands, which is really what Abraham was doing. God had promised these wonderful things, and he just kept, oh, it's taking too long. And he takes matters into his own hands. But his faith was credited to him as righteousness. As soon as that wonderful success here comes another failure. So look at chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant. Where did he get her? That's, she's part of the Egyptian swag, remember? Female servants. So because of his disobedience and going to Egypt, now he has that Hagar, it's not her fault, but you know, trailing along in his life. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. You know what that means. It may, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, so it had been 10 years since the promise, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had been conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And then you can see where they mistreated Hagar, horribly oppressed Hagar. And one of the guys this week had, in my podcast had mentioned, he says, long before the Egyptians oppressed the Israelites, the Israelites oppressed the Egyptians. He'd waited 10 years, didn't see a child coming. Maybe this promise is just not true. But so God rescues Abraham and Sarah from themselves. This promised child was supposed to come through them. The, the child, the promise is, is through Abraham and Sarah. It's not through Sarah and Pharaoh. It's not through um, Abraham and Hagar. But they're running ahead of God, trying to do it on their own. They keep trying to work out God's plan in their own way. Sound familiar? <laughs> My goodness. Don't we live here? This is, this is us. That's what we keep saying is that we fail and God is faithful. And so God tests him, he pushes him, he pushes those weaknesses to the surface and makes Abraham deal with them. And it's a test. And you might think at times when these weaknesses surface and, and you're going through a really difficult time that it's a punishment. Like, God, why is God paying me back? What bad did I do that God's paying me back for? No. How about you just, you have this weakness and he wants you, he's pushing you to the surface so that you can deal with it. And the test is really just to prove your faith. That's what a test is. When your kids go to school and they take a, a, a math test, it's to prove that they know the material. It's not a punishment. So tests are, are ways to prove. And so for Abraham, these tests are not punishments. It's a way to crystallize and prove his faith. And so along this walk of following God, there's plenty of times that we don't see the benefits and life gets tough and we don't feel God anymore and we see the blessings dry up and there's no outward motivation and we're tempted to back off and we're saying, well, this isn't what I signed up for and you might just say, well, I'm not seeing the results and God must have left me. I guess I'm on my own. I'll just do it my way. <laughs> Haven't we been there? Well, God hasn't left you at all. 
He's just working out his plan. He's calling your weaknesses to the surface and he asks you to confront them so that, and so that you can follow him through them. There's no option. You have to just keep walking. You see, only in Christianity does God walk with you through your difficulties to strengthen you. So on that trail in 1987, <laughs> all this incredible physical pain I was going through, the emotional turmoil, I just kept walking. And God used that time. I really feel like he, he used it to, to shape me and to mold me and, I, and to teach me that I wasn't alone, that this, my whole life wasn't dependent just on me, and he was working toward my growth. So let me ask, what difficulties have you faced in your life and how did you respond? Did you turn away from God, blame him for disrupting the comfortable life that you feel like you deserve, that you built? Or did you find new strength in him to overcome and see your faith increase? Did your faith strengthen to where you wouldn't trade now, looking back, you wouldn't trade that experience for anything because God used it to mold you and shape you? Or is anybody in difficulty right now? And have you asked God to strengthen you and, 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 to, and to help you instead of folding? Have you humbled yourself and asked God, say, God, am I following you just for the benefits? And can you honestly say that you'll trust him in hardship even when the benefits dry up? Well, that leads us to number three, is that we learn to follow God because he's God. So let's take a pan out a little bit, big picture. God puts us on this trail. We start on this trail by coming to God for the results because we know the, the payoff is truly great. But then we're faced with our weaknesses and God's promise to help and walk with us through those. So with Abram, fast forward many years later, Sarah uh, gives birth to Isaac, the promised son, and he grows into a young man. He's deeply loved by his parents and uh, all the promises are coming true. He sees the promise right here on Isaac, right before him. And then Genesis 22 says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God told him. Okay, is there anything here that's missing from Abraham's response that you might have seen years before? I need you to talk to me. Say it loud. I'm deaf. I can't hear that. Okay, kill your son. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll help you out here. First, it's immediate. He got up early the next day and left. And the second is, there's no payoff here. God doesn't mention any benefit to this, right? There's no reward. Now, whether Abraham believed that there would be or not, it doesn't even mention it. So there's no promise of a bigger mansion in heaven or a better place in the Bible or no promise or money, prestige, power. There's no benefits mentioned at all. In fact, it seems like a lose-lose situation. Hey, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. This, you know, the son that promised as many stars as there are in the, in the sky through him. There's no payoff at all. And notice that there's no question at all on Abraham's part. Man, See, years ago, he'd have thrown a temper tantrum. He would have questioned God. He would have asked, well, what's in it for me? Or he probably would have just done what he wanted to do anyway. But now God asked him, I want you to sacrifice your son. And he says, okay. Man. So for Abraham, after these years of walking on that God trail, his faith finally trekked the 12 most difficult inches to travel 
in the universe from your head to your heart. That's the biggest journey. He'd gone from head knowledge to heart decisions. His focus had shifted from payoffs to righteousness, from rewards to worship. And now from following God for what he does to following God for who he is. Years ago, I had to do a little retreat from when I was in seminary and the guy wanted us to, professor wanted us to go away, spend some time alone, pray, journal, all that kind of stuff. And I did, and it's a long story, but I, I basically threw that and God just like walloped me with this idea that I'm following him for benefits, not just for who he was. Because the night before he hit me with it, I had uh, read this article or, you know, by this guy, Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, very fancy, right? You have to put your pinky out when you read him because he's so fancy. Um, but he had written in the 17th century this idea of, you know, love for God. And he said there's four stages. So he said for, there's loving God for self, loving self for self's sake, which is where we all start, right? Love, then you love God for yourself's sake. Then you love God for God's sake. Then you love self for God's sake. See, too often, and God just walloped me with this, is the idea that I had loved God for my own sake, for the results and the payoffs and what it meant to me. And he was dealing with me in that moment to my weakness of faith and wanted me to more consistently love him for his sake. But see, this little pattern, this four-part pattern here, it just seems like that's what Abraham did, that's what we do, that's what everybody does. Stage one is that, you know, we're just a depraved human being. We just love ourselves for ourselves' sake. We're just in it for ourselves. But then number two we love God, but we do it for our sake, for the benefits. Okay, just don't stay there. Number three is through our weaknesses and troubles, we, God teaches us to love him for his sake. We, we, we come to see the benefit is not just the gifts that God gives, it's him as a giver. See, the biggest reward is, is not some blessing, but it's God himself. And then the fourth stage, you know, loving yourself for God's sake is where you just see yourself as a child of God, made in the image of God. But it was this incredible gift that he gives. And he, he just wanted me to spend some time and he walloped me with that. And I just thought, you know, I'm just like Abraham. I'm just like everybody else where through all those failures, God is so faithful. But we gotta keep walking and moving forward. And with Abraham, he got him to a place where he was willing to sacrifice his son because God is God and he's not. Now, if you know the story you know that God wasn't gonna have Abraham go through with it. It's not, God's not malicious. Remember, te, uh, trials and, and, and tests are there to prove our faith. They're not a punishment. And so it's not, this is not God like being masochistic and hating Abraham and being like blood for blood. You know, that's not who our God is, right? So of course God before, you know, when he passes the test, he's ready to, he's got the knife in the air, God stops him, provides a ram for the sacrifice, but it just reveals and proves Abraham's faith. Because there's one thing that is true about God is that he never asks us to do what he wouldn't. Because centuries later, God was sacrificed, truly sacrificed his own son for us. So coming around the corner at the end of that hike at the Hetch Hetchy Dam, end of 66 mile week long hike, I felt like I just kind of, one side of the dam, I left my childhood there and I felt like I'd grown up through the process of that trip and I'd reached my destination. I'd overcome all this physical and emotional and spiritual challenge and, and my weaknesses had been exposed and God was faithful to me even though I had failed. And, you know, it was a real like coming of age kind of thing. You know, I really wish our culture did that more. But 
I was falling forward, failing forward, that I had messed up, I had made my mistakes, but I was staying on the trail and I was continuing to walk. And that leads us to the last point, which is the result, which is what we're all hoping for is this, is that we follow God until we're satisfied with life. Look at how Abraham's life ends in Genesis 25. It says, altogether, Abraham lived 175 years. There's a lot of candles on that cake, eh? So it says, and then <laughs> Abraham breathed his last and died. And really, who wouldn't? You know, when you breathe your last, you usually die. Okay, whatever. Okay, thank you. Uh, no, he breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years. And look at the, the New American Standard says it like this. I love it. Abraham breathed his last and died at a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. That's good. <laughs> That's how I want to go. Because listen, God treats us like a good parent treats different kids. Many of you have multiple kids. I'm sure your kids are very different. And so your relationship with them is, you know, kind of very different based on who they are. But your goal is the same for them. You want, you want those kind of same goals for them. And so for God, he's dealing with us as his own adult children. And he has the same goal, which is to become a fully devoted follower of Christ. But it's going to look different for everybody. So in those moments, well, I'll just say this. Like a good parent, God gets us to the point where he doesn't need to bribe children to obey don't you want your kids to obey you just because you're the parent rather than having to bribe them? And so as we grow in the Lord, we realize we don't need trinkets and toys to obey him and love him and serve him. And it comes to a point where we follow God simply because he's God, where we're satisfied in just knowing God. So rather than as a, you know, because this is what happens, we'll go through a difficulty and we'll say, but they're not dealing with that. And look at their life. Their life looks perfect. And then you, you start comparing yourself to all the other kids. And God's like, yeah, I realize that, but I'm dealing with you because you have this weakness that I need you to deal with right now and I'll walk with you through it. Don't worry about them. They dealt with that weakness years ago. And don't worry about them. Theirs is coming. So, you know, you worry about you. And that's how it is with your own kids. There's time when, when one of your kids is having a hard time, the other one's just fine, and then they flip-flop. And it's just, you deal with your kid where they're at. And that's how God deals with us as a loving father. John 17, 3 says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's it. That's eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus whom you have sent. So on those days where you feel like you don't feel God like you used to, maybe you did at one point, and you think, man, I must have done something wrong. God's not blessing me anymore. No, <laughs> you've just moved further down the road. And God is treating you like an adult child. And maybe he's just stopped dangling charms in front of you to get you to keep walking. And maybe you're learning just to trust God and follow him for the right reasons and be satisfied in just knowing him and loving the giver instead of just the gifts. Now, I don't know where you are on the road. I know for me, I still do way too many things for the payoff, <laughs> right? Anybody guilty? We do that, man. We, we still, that's our grid and we follow God so many times for the payoff and I got a lot of weaknesses I need to deal with and there's way few times that I follow God for the sake of following God. And even though I'm not as far as I could be, and I'm certainly not as far as some others that I know, I'm committed to staying on the road because I want to die an old man ripe of age and satisfied with life. 
I don't want to be 135. But, you know, I'll take a ripe old age satisfied with life. And Because here's the thing. God doesn't expect you to be a super Christian right now. And this is important. Maybe this is all you need to hear today. Is that God doesn't love some future version of you. He doesn't love the person, only love the person you're gonna be, but right now he just tolerates you. That's not it. He loves you now. He's working in your life to move you to the destination to stay on the trail to become a fully devoted follower of Christ. Let's pray.